0: as the children are dismissing themselves. You please take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16, the final time. John 16, verses 25 through 33 this morning. you can find that on page 902 in the New Bible. I cannot wait for John 17, often called the High Priestly Prayer. John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer. <coughs> we spent months in the first four chapters of this farewell discourse listening to the Son of God talk to His disciples. Next time, we have the privilege of listening to the Son of God talk to His Father. Lord, teach us to pray, the disciples have said. Well, He will, by example, in John chapter 17. And prayer was our closing application last week. We closed with prayer. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What do you tend to ask for? And speaking from experience, maybe this is just me, so many of our prayers are entirely selfish. So many of them are entirely about us and now and this life and comfort and ease in this life. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to pray about those things. We should pray about all sorts of things. But we're seeking to grow in our praying about first things and most important things. This promise that Christ has given us has to be something more than, hey, I kind of want that thing, I'm going to ask for that thing, and when I get that thing, then I will be happy. No, it can't be that. For Jesus is here preparing his disciples for the great suffering that is to come for him and for them. In this world, you will have tribulation. The world hates you. They will persecute you. They will put you out of the synagogues. They will kill you, but joy. And so we talked last week about expectations. We saw the confusion and sorrow of the Christian life. Expect there to be times of confusion and sorrow. You heard me say that last week. I said expect that. And then for some of you, that, the confusion and the sorrow, came this last week. How'd it go? How did you respond? How did you do? What do you most need? Or if you read the email this week, you already know what you most need. All you need is love. That sounds trite. That sounds cliche. That sounds underwhelming. But it is true if you understand what love truly is and where that love is truly found and what that love does and means for you. If you can understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of that love. Ask and you will receive. What do you tend to ask for? I encourage you, again. I've said this before, but read the prayers of Paul. Consider your prayers in light of Paul's prayers. It's a humbling, challenging exercise, for he does not pray for the th- things that we tend to pray for. For example, Ephesians 3:14 through 21. What does Paul pray for there? He asks, I love this prayer, he asks that God would grant you to be strengthened with power. right? So you need the power of God himself for something. This power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? What do we need this power for? That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length. height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What a prayer that is. do Do we ever pray like that? Paul has to ask God himself to give us strength so that we may be able to even begin to comprehend and understand and appreciate and experience the love of Christ. For it is a love that is so wide and long and high and deep, it is a love that so surpasses knowledge. We need help. We need the spiritual strength of God Himself to comprehend the greatness of this love. All you need is love, but it's this infinite eternal love. It is this love of the infinite eternal Father secured for us by the infinite eternal Son poured out on us and in our hearts through the infinite and eternal Spirit. If you have that love, and know that love, and can learn to keep that love always before your eyes, and live in light of that love, then you actually do have all that you need. And so all i want to do this morning is consider that love with you as we consider Christ's closing words to His disciples before His departure. This is it. Final words. He prays to the Father. Chapter 18, betrayal and arrest, and it all begins. And so there are two main ideas in these closing words that I want to focus on. Two wonderful words of life. For the Father himself loves you. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Christian, take heart. Heart. In Christ, you have the love of God and you have peace with God and you have the guarantee of ultimate, final victory. The Father himself loves you. That changes everything. Knowing the love of God transforms your experience of the troubles of life because knowing God and his love is eternal life. And eternal life has this amazing ability to put the present life and all of its troubles and sorrows in proper perspective. So, let us simply meditate on that love together this morning. I have three points, nothing fancy here. But all I want to do is to be deliberately and unavoidably Trinitarian. I want you to see that this love, that all, that is all that you need, is a Trinitarian love. It is a love of the whole Godhead coming together, For his glory and your good. So all we're going to do is consider our passage in those terms. Starting with the Father and his love. And then the Son and his love. And finally the Spirit and his love. God is love. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Father is love. And the Son is love. And the Spirit is love. And we see all three persons coming together here to the glory of God. And the good of God's people through the revelation of this wonderful love. Take heart. How? Why? Well, let's read and see what Jesus closes with here. I'm reading in John chapter 16. I will pick up in verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter. Pay close attention. This is what the God who is love wants to say to you today. John 16, 25. Jesus says, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's begin with a word of prayer and ask for God to help us in this time. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, what a blessing it is that you have structured Time you have structured our weeks and our lives around this day, around the Lord's day, around the opportunity to regularly come together as your people to rest, to be refreshed, to be encouraged and taught and instructed by your word, to honor and glorify and praise you as we do so. But, Father, in doing that, you do much good for us as you continue to reveal yourself to us, who you are and, and what you have done to us through your living and active work. Amen. So, Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would do that now in this time. Father, my words alone are helpless to do anything, but, Father, your Word and the power of your Spirit can do infinite and eternal and wonderful things. Father, show us Christ. Show us the love of Christ. Show us your love, Heavenly Father. Show us the love of the Holy Spirit, and may we find great Peace in that love as we face the various struggles of life. Father, do your work on our behalf now. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, point number one we're going to start with the Father and love because the Father is the focus of Christ's final words to his disciples. He is about to say many words to the Father in prayer in the hearing of his disciples. First, he says some words about the Father to his disciples in the hearing of his Father. There are eight references to the Father in our short text. Six fathers and two gods that are talking about the Father. Christ's preaching was fundamentally a proclamation of the Father. This is why Christ has come. This is what he has come to do. He has come to reveal the Father, and then he has come to accomplish the work that will restore us to the Father. And so it makes sense that his final words are about the Father. The words that you most need to hear are about the Father. So look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. First off, going back to week, notice, notice the words. Right, we'll come back to this a little bit more, but don't miss the words and the centrality of the words and what Christ says there. I have said these things to you, right, that is, in words in figures of speech. That's words. The hour is coming. We'll no, I will no longer speak in more words in figures of speech. That's words, but will tell you more words plainly about the Father. Words, words, words. Come, Christ has come to teach through his words, of the Father. The focus of the words is the Father. These are words about the Father and the love of the Father, and the love of the Father is the one thing that you most need. Why is that? That's quite a clue. I recently read a book. there's a memoir about a guy growing up in Manhasset, so not, not too far from here, Long Island. Here's the opening paragraph of this memoir, biography, true story. Here's what the guy writes, we went there for everything we needed. Try to figure out where the everything is. We went there for everything we needed. We went there when thirsty and when hungry and when dead tired. We went there when happy to celebrate and when sad to sulk. We went there after weddings and funerals for something to settle our nerves and always for a shot of courage just before. We went there when we didn't know what we needed, hoping someone might tell us. We went there when looking for love or trouble or for someone who had gone missing because sooner or later, everyone turned up there. Most of all, we went there when we needed to be found. My personal list of needs was long. An only child abandoned by my father, I needed a family, a home, and men, especially men. I needed men as mentors, heroes, role models. That's the opening paragraph of this memoir. What's the place? Where's the, Where are they going? It's a bar. They're going to a bar. Right? The, the name of the book is The Tender Bar. Right? The bar is its tender, it's comforting, it's, it's caring. He goes on to say that at that bar is where he found the father's that he needed, that the bar itself becomes a father to him as the gathering place of all these father figures that this young man was so desperate for. And the whole book is his account of growing up without a father, desperate for that love of a father, and then seeking it in these surrogate fathers, who are all drunks, at the local bar. He writes this on the first page. Keep this in mind as we go. In the end, I believe we're defined by what embraces us. That's really good. In the end, I believe that we are defined by what embraces us. And this man, not a Christian, was desperate to be embraced by the love of a father. Why? There was an important book in the 90s called Fatherless, that called fatherlessness in America our most urgent social problem. There was a recent study in England that argued that people's need for a father is an epidemic, is on epidemic. Scale and that father deficit should be treated as a public health issue. Why is that? Why does everyone, the world even, recognize and feel the need for a father and the love of a father? Well, it's of course, really the answer. It's because of design, it's because of the designer, it's because of the Heavenly Father who created this. World for his own glory as a reflection and a revelation of who he is, and he is a father. He is the father. This is not an anthropomorphism. This is not something that we take about mankind and project onto God to help us to better understand something about it. No, this is who God is. This is how God reveals himself to us as the father and as your creator. And as the Lord, as the one who is life and love perfectly, unchangeably, and eternally, He is what you were created for. And He is what you most need. And He is why Christ has come. To reveal the Father to us and to return us to the Father. To reveal and to return. And so at the end of verse 25, He says that the hour is coming when He will speak plainly about the Father. We'll sort out the figures of speech versus the telling plainly in a moment. But I want us to focus first on the Father. Look at verse 26. More Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf? Stop. What does that mean? Well, what, really, what it means is it means an access. It's access, is what Jesus is talking about there. My children have an access to me that no one else has. I was literally, as I was writing the above few paragraphs, right, Tessa just marches right into my room, I she walks right over to my chair, out of work, she inserts her head up between my typing arms, type. she gets her head up in there, and then she slowly kind of climbs herself, situates herself in my lap, and then she just settles in for a cuddle, as if she owns the place. She gets to do that. You do not. <laughs> she has access to her father as my child that nobody else has. And what Jesus is saying in verse 26 is that in him you have access to the father that no one else has. Jesus is not saying there that he will no longer mediate or intercede on our behalf. We know that he does. We have plenty of other verses that tell us that he does. What he is saying here is that once his work of redemption and reconciliation is accomplished, we will now have direct Access to the Father ourselves. The veil has been torn. The separation has been done away with. We now can come directly into the presence of the Father ourselves. Of course, we have that access only in Jesus' name, only based on what He has done for us, but we do have the access. You, child of God, in Christ, can go directly to God the Father in prayer. And He is near you, and He hears you, He sees you and He cares for you. You Don't forget that this is God that we're talking about here. The creator and sustainer of reality itself. The all-glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing transcendent one whose mind is somehow minding the billions of minds in this world all the ones who is somehow sovereign over the, I don't even know the number of, of molecules in existence. He is this mind beyond comprehension, and he is near, and he hears, and he cares for us. All that bigness and greatness, all our smallness and weakness. You've seen this in a couple of the Psalms we've been in lately. Psalm 33:18. 18. Right, how does this transcendent God respond and relate to us? 33:18. 18. The eye of the Lord, that Lord, is on those who fear Him. God's eye is on Him. Psalm 34, 15. Again, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. He hears your cries. 18. This is a wonderful one. You know it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's 34, 18. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. That, that's you. That's us. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heaven. Right? Transcendence, greatness. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. You have intimate access to this God. How is that possible? Look at verse 27. Here it is. Here's how. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The Father himself loves you. First off, I love the word that John chooses here for love. It's it's the Greek word phileo. And we've talked about this a couple of times. People get caught up and obsessed with this idea that there's this distinction. Agape, divine love, and phileo, brotherly love. But it's just not a biblical distinction. It doesn't hold up when you look at the text and examine the Greek. Surely if there was a distinction in the closing words to the disciples, Jesus would want to encourage them with the superior agape love of the Father. But he doesn't. The Father loves you, phileo, because you love me. Phileo. And John uses the words interchangeably. John five twenty, the Father loves the Son. Phileo. John three thirty five, the Father loves the Son. Agapeo. Same thing. But you don't care. Right? Philos agape. Doesn't matter. Right? Why are we talking about this? Well, my only concern is that it's possible that we so hold up this one supposedly unique and special thing, this agape divine like we set it on this pedestal, and we set it apart from all other supposed loves, <clears throat> that we can end up actually not really loving anyone at all. I, I think maybe it's this supposed agape distinction that is at the root of this silly idea that we can love one another and not like one another. Agape, yeah okay you gotta have a paleo. Nah, You don't have to like it Don't, don't worry about that. No, it's absurd. The point is, the point that I want to make is that biblically there's there's love. There is God's love. For he is the God who is love. And thus all true love is going to be like that love and reflect that love, though, of course, imperfectly. When we saw this back in 1334. Christ says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the highest love. We're to love one another as we have been loved by Christ and how has Christ loved us? How has the Father loved us? It is important here that we emphasize the Father's love because we we sometimes have this subconscious sneaking suspicion about the father's disposition toward us right? We know that the son loves us he's the nice one right but the father isn't he like the angry grumpy one the Old Testament God of wrath? But Jesus, the nice one, the the loved one, he comes because he loves us. He appeases the wrath of the angry father. He kind of twists his arm and he convinces the father to love us. No. Jesus says, For God, for the father so loved the world. That's that's us. Not not, not just the Jews, but the nations, people from every tribe, people and nation. God loves us in this way that he gave his only son. That's the source and the origin of all that is happening and all that Christ is doing. The love of the Father. Christ has been emphasizing this again and again. He's come to do his Father's will. The Son has come to do only what the Father wants. Verse 28 tells us that he came from the Father. 8.28 tells us that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. To speak only what the Father tells them. To do only the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? It's the salvation of his people. And that's love. That's the love of the Father. And that's the love that you most need. Not love as the world defines it today. This vacuous feeling of acceptance and affirmation and celebration. Remember, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The world says, if you love me, you will let me do whatever I want, and you will celebrate it. That's not love. Love is active and good-seeking. Love seeks the good of the love. Our small group is memorizing, Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's love. And if that's what love is, then here's the most amazing thing. The Father does that for you. But the Father himself loves you. Here's J.I. Packer's definition of God's love from knowing God. He says God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy Him in a covenant relation. That's love. And that's a wonderful definition. Here's the part that I want you to see and be amazed by. Love is identification. Love identifies itself with the loved. As a husband called to love my wife as Christ loved the church, my happiness is now bound up in the happiness of my wife. If she is in misery and agony and distress, and I'm unaffected and unmoved and uncaring, well, it's evidence of not really loving my wife. Right? Love attaches itself to the love. It binds the lover to the love. And then finds its happiness and welfare in the happiness and welfare of the loved. And if that's true, then this is almost unbelievable. The Father himself loves you. Father God, transcendent God of all glory, Himself has identified Himself with your welfare and well-being and good and happiness. And I can never get over the promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah thirty-two, forty-one. This is God speaking: "I will rejoice in doing them good." That's God speaking about you. He will take find joy and delight in doing you good. He delights in that. And that's love. That's what love does. We've already just read Psalm 34, 27. Great is the Lord. Where do we see that greatness expressed here? Who delights in the welfare of his servant. The Father delights in your welfare. He loves you. And that means that the Father himself has identified himself with your welfare and well-being and good. And that means that he will bring about your good. He will work all things together for your good. And that is guaranteed in the truth that the Father himself loves you. Because this Father, this sovereign cannot fail in that at which he uh, sets out to accomplish. And listen, we cannot take this for granted. We cannot assume that. This We cannot just believe, as most seem to believe today, that we deserve that. That we have a right or a claim on that. You know, we're all pretty decent and lovable people. So, of course, God loves us. That's his job. Of course he's working for our good. Because, you know, we're we're pretty good. So we've got this love. And of course we've got this love. Wrong. That That is deadly and dangerously wrong. And so we need to clarify something important here. God rejoices in doing them good. Well, who is that? And in what is that good? What is this good that the love of this father pursues? I think we see it in point number two. I think this is clarified in point number two when we consider now the son and his love. Look at verse 28. Let's talk about the son for a second. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. That's a masterfully constructed statement. Look at it. Look at how well this goes together. You have have Father, world, world, Father. You have came, come, leaving, going. It's a huge verse. That's basically the whole of John's Gospel summed up in one verse. That's the whole movement. (laughs) of Christ's first coming, summed up in one verse. That's the deity and the divinity of the Son. He came from the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the incarnation of the Son. He has come into the world, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the death of Christ. I am leaving the world. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's the resurrection and ascension of Christ. I am going To the Father. That's the gospel right there. And it is there that you see the love of God most clearly. Love seeks the good of the loved. In the Psalm 34 email, taste and see that the Lord is good. what does that mean What's goodness. I define good as that which is beneficial to life. Good is, is that which produces and promotes life. John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life <clears throat> and have it abundantly. So that's the good. That's the good that the God of life works toward our good. How does he do it? John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd of life. The shepherd of life lays down that life for the good, for the life of The sheep, sheep. Life is what this whole thing is about. We finally get to it next time, 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And God sent him to die. God loved us in this way, that he gave his only Son. And the measure of love is how much it gives. And here God's love gives everything. Everything. In the giving of his own Son, the Son of God, to become a man and die as a man, God gives everything. The infinitely and eternally valuable one. And why does he do that? It's that we might live. That's the goodness, that's the good, life. But the implication of that, though, first, is that we were dead. That our sin that rebels against the God of life and rejects the God of life is death. It demands death. The waste of sin is death. But God, Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it. That's everything, right there. That's the good news of the gospel that you most need to hear and to learn to live in light of. That's the power of God for salvation, for life. We sin, we deserve death. The gospel is that Christ comes and takes on that sin and death for us that we might be justified, saved, reconciled, and returned to the God who is life. Returned to the Father himself. That's what this whole thing the return to the one who is life. That's the good that the love of God seeks and accomplishes for those who are His. The Father, in love, plans and sends the Son to seek the good of His people and save them. The Son, in love, comes and accomplishes the good and salvation of His people by taking their place, dying for them, and rising again that we might be with God Forever. Thus life and goodness forever. The Father himself loves you. 1627. The Son himself loves you. 1334. Just as I have loved you. Now, for the rest of our time, let's, let's complete the trifecta. Point number three. The Spirit and love. First of all, what's a trifecta? I just read Seaviskin, it's a book. It's about horse racing. I learned a lot about horse racing that I didn't know. And it's almost impossible these days to separate horse races from horse race betting. And originally, trifecta, was a horse race betting term. I've never bet on horses, don't fire me. I'm not not a horse race gambler. Don't go do this. So this is is for illustration purposes only. you pick a horse, each horse has different odds. You pick the winner, and if you get the winner right, the amount of money that you win is based upon the odds. So the really strong favorite horses, you're going to win less money if you bet on them. If you somehow pick an underdog who's like 40 to 1, and you get it right, bang, you you make a lot of money. The lower the odds, the more money you get if the horse wins. The trifecta is about the uh, lowest of odds as you can get. And thus, as high a return as you can get. In the trifecta, instead of picking the winner, that's what you usually do, you pick the winner. To win the trifecta, you have to correctly pick the first place horse and the second place horse and the third place horse. It's almost impossible. But if you do hit the trifecta, as cash money, you win. The trifecta is the jackpot. Well, this is, this is the spiritual trifecta. I've never illustrated the love of the Trinity with horse gambling before but In Christ, you are loved by the Father, by the Son, and by the Spirit. Where is the Spirit in our passage? Well, He's everywhere. No, He's not named in our passage, but He's still everywhere, which is actually pretty typical of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit is arguably the topic of the farewell discourse. Christ is departing, and He is comforting His despairing disciples by teaching them, and largely by teaching them about the coming Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. Well, where do we see Him, and what is He doing in our passage? Well, go back to verse 25. We didn't, we didn't figure this out. We need to figure out the figures of speech. First of all, we're just just far too familiar with the many strange things that Christ says. And so it's easy for us to miss just how mysterious much of what he says is. Destroy this massive complex of a temple and in three days I'll raise it up. You must be born again. Hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, and so on. This is, this is Christ's teaching. Remember back in verse 12, Jesus says that he still has many things to say to the disciples, but they're not, they're not able to, to bear them at this point. The disciples, they're not tracking with Jesus. They're, they're not understanding. But in 25, Jesus tells them that the hour is coming when they will understand, when he will tell them plainly about the Father, and then he says a couple of things that sound like things that he's already said to them, and it seems like he's saying to them in similar ways that he's been saying them to them. them. Like verse 28, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, now I'm leaving the world, now I'm going to the Father. That still seems somewhat not plain to me. But look at the disciples' response in 29. Ah, now you are speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech. What? What's different? What's more plain about what Christ has just said compared to a couple of the other things that he's just said? Well, nothing. I think. Look at 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Wait, what's changed? Nothing. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them. Do you... Now believe, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. See, I think think my interpretation is correct, because I think this is Jesus' interpretation. Jesus agrees, nothing has changed with the disciples, yet. I think the disciples are still misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus says in 25, the hour is coming... And they think that hour is right now. Oh, now now we know. We get it. The hour's coming. He says like two verses, and they think those are the speaking plainly. Now we know. It's so plain. Now we believe. Jesus says, do you? Now? Really? You're about an hour away from scattering and abandoning me completely and leaving me alone. Now we know. And they're gone. The point is that verses 26 through 28 are not the hour hour that is coming, when Jesus will tell them plainly about the Father. The disciples are misunderstanding it again. That cannot happen yet. They cannot fully understand yet. Remember, from last week, until the work of the Son has been fully accomplished, the Spirit cannot be fully sent, and the Father cannot yet be fully revealed. The telling plainly about the Father will be after the Resurrection. And after the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things, and guide you into all truth, and declare to you the things that are to come, and glorify Christ, for the Spirit will take what is Christ and declare it to you. See, again, I think Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit there. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit that in the revelation and inspiration of this word, through the apostles, and then in his ongoing illumination of this living and active word, as he's hopefully doing right now, it's through that work that the Father, through the Son, is plainly revealed to us. And in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that he sent his Son, Spirit to be the revelation and application of the Son's work of forgiving our sins. In all of this, the love of God for His people, for you, is revealed. And so the Father loves you, and the Son loves you, and the Spirit loves you. This is the trifecta. The Father decrees your salvation and sends the Son. The Son comes and dies for your salvation. The Spirit then comes and reveals and applies Christ's work for your salvation. And what's the result of all of this, this this work of love? It's verse 33. It's Christ's closing words. Pay attention to these words. Note the triumph. Note the guarantee. What does it mean for you if you right now are loved by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world so first expectations in this world you will have trouble there will be confusion there will be sorrow some of you are in the midst of it right now and it's heavy And it's disorienting what is going on. Why are things so hard? Note the kindness of Christ's words to you here. He told you 2,000 years ago. He's telling you, hey, expect this. This, That's the same thing that he's doing for his disciples right then. Do you now believe? Hey, you're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone in about an hour. And I know that. And I know the weakness of your little faith. And I know the confusion and the sorrow and also the sin and the betrayal. And I still love you. And I'm going to do what I am going to do precisely because of all of that. To save you from all of that. To save you from yourself. They had weak, little faith. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus loved them. They had weak, little faith. But Ephesians 2, eight, it is by grace that you have been saved. Not by faith, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The very faith itself is a gift from God, a grace. And that grace of faith, when you have it, no matter how small, is a saving faith. For Thomas Watson, even a weak faith may lay hold on a strong faith. Christ. It's not the object, it's not faith that saves, it's the object of that faith, it's Christ that saves. And so like the disciples, God knows that your faith will be sometimes small and struggling like mine, and so take heart, he says. The King James translates it "This is wild. Be of good cheer. Why? Because Christ has already overcome the world. He has already ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has already set down, his work having been accomplished. And so no matter the circumstances, no matter how troubling, they will turn out for good. The end will be victory and triumph. And that means that in this world, whatever the trials and tribulations and troubles in him, you can have peace. How? Is that possible? It's only in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of the love of God. The Father himself loves you. And what does love do? It seeks the good of the loved. The Father himself is sovereign. What does that sovereignty do? It is able and does work all things together for the good of those he loves. Doesn't so that really does change Everything. I've never been able to get over Thomas Watson's All Things for Good since I read it a number of years ago. And and one of his big applications of an understanding of the love of God and the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, is this. Listen to what he says. This this is profound and important. He says, from this fact, the love of God, the sovereignty of God, learn how little cause we have then to be discontented at outward trials troubles. I love the sarcasm here. That's beautiful, loving, pastoral sarcasm. He says, what? Discontented? At that which shall do us good? All things shall work for good. There are no sins God's people are more subject to than unbelief and impatience. Amen. They are ready either to faint through unbelief or to fret through impatience. When men fly out against God, By discontent and impatience, it is a sign that they do not believe this verse. Discontent is an ungrateful sin because we have more mercies than afflictions. And it is an irrational sin because all of those afflictions work for good. Let this text produce patience. All things work for good. Shall we then be discontented at that which will work for our good? The Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it's to enrich us. These light afflictions work for us an eternal weight of glory. And shall we be discontented about that? That was long, but you see what he's saying there? If all things truly do work for good, for those who love God and are loved by God, then all those trials and tribulations, the big ones and the small ones, the catastrophic things and just the little annoyances, And frustrations, those things that so disconcert and discourage us, are eventually and only instruments in the hands of our gracious Heavenly Father that He is going to use to enrich us and to work for us an eternal weight of glory beyond compare and comprehension. Listen, that's love. That is an all powerful love. I love my daughters, but I am weak. There are things that I cannot do for them, and that I cannot accomplish for them, and that I cannot guarantee for them. He is the perfect heavenly father. And in all his power, he can and will accomplish everything that he promised and wills for his people. And he wills your good. That is a peace-providing, heart-comforting love. And it is in this, in believing this, and trusting him that he is good and out for your good, that you can find the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, a peace that cannot be touched by outward circumstances. The disciples are about to face an almost impossible set of circumstances. They're going to suffer greatly, and most are going to die for their faith, but they can take heart, they can have peace, because the Christ who so loved them that he died for them has already overcome the world in that very death and resurrection. And so, the love of God really does change everything. It's actually true that all you need is love if it's this love. In Christ, the Father himself loves you. The Son loves you. The Spirit loves you. And it is an eternal, good-seeking and securing And so if we are really defined by what embraces us, let that define you. That's that's what you are embraced by, the love of the triune God. And if you are struggling, then come back to the love of the triune God. And then if you're still struggling, come back to it again and again and again and again until you find the peace that is promised to you even. I will leave you with Spurgeon's words from Psalm 26 again, because I think they're so helpful. He tells us that we cannot think too much upon the divine loving kindness. You cannot think too much on the love of God. And he says this, here's your application. Brethren, depend upon it, that if you shall find each of you, when you get dull and flagging in the practical part of your religion, all of us that happens to all of us at times, when you get to that point, the proper way, To revive it is to think more than you have done upon the loving kindness of God. It's so simple, but it's so profound and true. Brethren, God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, loves you. Think more on that than you have done. Think constantly on that. And by the grace of God, through the working of the Spirit, you will find the peace that Christ promises you Bow with me, and let's close and ask him for that very thing in the word of prayer. Father, you tell us that your words are living and active. You promise to us that your words will not and do not return to you void. Father, there are words here where you tell us that you love us, where you tell us that in Christ we can have peace even in the midst of great trouble. So, Father, we ask for you to work those words and those truths and apply them to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see who you are as the gracious and benevolent and kind and compassionate Heavenly Father who loves his children and who is eternally and perfectly committed to seeking the good of his children. Father, sometimes it does not feel like that uh, through all the hard and bad things in this life. Father, give us your perspective. Give us a spiritual, heavenly, eternal perspective. Help us through your word and the promises contained in your word to see and believe and trust that what it is that you are doing is better and for our good and that you love us far more than we love ourselves and that you know what our good is far better than we know um, for ourselves. We ask that you would help us to trust you. Father, we thank you for loving us. None of us deserve an ounce of that love. None of us have done a single thing that would merit that love or make us worthy of that love. And yet you have set that love upon us in Jesus Christ so that we may be loved by you, by grace, through faith. Father, help us to trust you and find great peace for our souls in Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.